Chris Funk is the director of the Climate Hazard Center at UC Santa Barbara. He works with an international team of Earth scientists to inform weather and famine-related disaster responses. He is the author of Drought, Flood, Fire, How Climate Change Contributes to Recent Catastrophes, and co-author with Shrad Shukla of Drought, Early Warning, and Forecasting. Chris studies climate and climate change while also developing improved data sets, monitoring prediction systems, and conceptual frameworks to help us cope with increasingly dangerous climate and weather extremes. Chris Funk, welcome to One Planet Podcast. Thanks, Mia. It's wonderful to be here. So you write the story of this book began with a dream, and I believe you're going to share a little bit of that dream with us from drought, flood, fire, and how climate change contributes to recent catastrophes. Sure. I worked after college as a computer programmer and an econometric analyst for an options consulting company in, in Chicago, which the options pits were these places where people would trade, you know, options and futures and they would yell at each other and millions of dollars could be lost in an instant. I didn't work in the pits, but I worked for people who supported people in the pits with information. And it was very hot in Chicago in the summers. And we would drive our motorcycles down at about one o'clock in the morning and, and go to Lake Michigan and hang out in the water and drink a beer and look out at the moon. And I, in my dream, I was doing that with, with my good friends and I could feel this water pulling at the back uh, of my legs as I was you know, looking out at the lake and the city was behind me. And I realized that this water that was being sucked out into the lake was going to be a, a big tsunami. There was going to be this massive tidal wave that was going to come and crash down on the city. And I thought, oh my gosh, I've got to get to my office in the South Loop so that I can put in a bunch of options puts and become rich. And, you know, it's kind of a funny dream, but, but it kind of it really shook me. You know, it, it, when I woke up the next day and thought about it, I was like, wow. It, what kind of person are you that when faced with this disaster, this is like your, your first instinct. And so, yeah, that dream, you know, helped kind of mark a turning point in my life where I left my job and came out to Santa Barbara and went to, to graduate school, not really knowing, you know, what I wanted to do. But when I came here, I met a gentleman by the name of Jim Verdon who got me involved working with the Famine Early Warning Systems Network using earth science to try to save people's lives from famine. And, you know, 23 years later, I guess I'm still here. So it was a good turning point that you made that transition. And just thinking about it, there are still people betting on fossil fuels, betting on all those things. And it's so difficult to even fathom why they, they're continuing to back what is killing people. Uh, a complete agreement, complete agreement. And, you know, one of the things that I tried to share, you know, in my book, Drought, Fire, Flood, is just that it, it's not hard if you look at the data to see how harmful and impactful climate change is right now as we speak. And but just yesterday, my colleague and friend, Shred Shukla, was sharing temperature data from his hometown in India where his mom was and it was you know 106 degrees Fahrenheit and you know we're seeing 
horrendous droughts play out across East Africa, unprecedented level of droughts. But these impacts are also costing hundreds of billions of dollars a year. And the you know, cost of reducing our, our emissions is really, you know, not that great. I think the estimate is something like a, a trillion dollars a year for the entire globe, which sounds like a lot of money, but, you know, that's about 1% of global GDP. And so we can certainly afford to, to make a big dent in, in our emissions. We've seen how we were able to gather globally, internationally. It wasn't perfect around COVID. The problem is a little bit simpler. <laughs> that was, is catastrophic. But that was a kind of hopeful thing to see that that could be done. Of course, a lot of different moving parts in terms of climate change. Just tell us first about your work in Santa Barbara and then your work with this wider humanitarian earth science community. So I am the director of the Climate Hazard Center here at the uh, University of California, Santa Barbara in the geography department. And it's a really great job. I basically work with my partner scientists to develop data sets and forecasts to help us see climate hazards and respond to them. And as part of that, I get to have a lot of great interactions and collaborations with scientists in Sub-Saharan Africa and Central America. And that's really exciting as well. And what we so enjoyed about your book is it's not just, yes, there's data sets, there are climate toolkits, there's ways where you and your team and community are really working, making practical changes that are helping save people's lives, but it also gives testimonials that help us see behind the statistics. Yeah, that's, that's exactly, exactly. You know, we call it seeing the people in the pixels. That behind the data are human lives that are being, you know, tragically impacted by these extremes. And that's something that I really picked up on in the book. You had a line in the very beginning part where you were like, I am a data scientist. And then you cited somebody else who's discussing how this doesn't really seem like a disaster when you're focusing more on this umbrella statistic of like a million people or a million degrees instead of just like the one person. Thanks, Andrew. Yeah, I'm glad that worked. It was, you know, the book is really weird and ambitious, you know? I mean, it's, and I, I was so delighted that Cambridge Press let me go forward with it because I think, you know, both the stories and the kind of emotional connection, you know, it and the data and having an understanding of how the mechanisms of climate change work. You know, those are three pieces that we kind of all need to share. So from climate change, you can create these conceptual models that help us predict future events. I can share, again, a personal, you know, journey about how my thinking about climate change has changed into a much more empowering perspective. You know, pretty early in my career, just doing routine work, building good rainfall data sets for Ethiopia, which is a very food insecure country. We discovered this decline in the springtime rains there, which we linked to climate change. But for about a decade, 
I thought about climate change the way that most people think about climate change as just sort of this trend. You know, it's going to keep getting a little bit drier. It's going to keep getting a little bit hotter. But then around about 2014, you know, by analyzing the dry events that produced the trend, you know, I started to think about climate change as a set of extremes. So if there's a trend upward or if there's in, in heat or if there's a you know trend downward in precipitation, those trends are going to be driven by individual events. And those events can be studied and predicted and monitored. And that's very, very empowering. And we are seeing East Africa racked by an unprecedented um, sequence of four dry rainy seasons. Our understanding of this conceptual model of climate change has allowed us to predict each of those droughts, you know, about six months in advance. So it's incredibly empowering. This is, I think what we, you know, are going to need to get us through this is, you know, thinking about climate change as extremes that can be predicted and responded to. You're talking about the different trends, creating singular events. Do you mind elaborating on the bathtub model or example that you discussed in the book? Cause I found that as somebody who is not a climate scientist, very helpful in understanding what this is. Essentially 90% of the uh, energy from climate change goes into the world's oceans and the way that uh, a lot of people, including a, a lot of climate change scientists think about it is a sort of bathtub warming, right? And that everything is just kind of getting warmer slowly at the same rate. And the reason that people think that way is that for decades, a very common way to analyze climate change was to have a bunch of climate change simulations and then average them. And the pattern that emerged from that was associated with emissions in our atmosphere. That was a really great way to detect climate change, especially when the signal was pretty weak. That is a very bad way to think about climate change if you're trying to understand the climatic hazards. The analogy in the atmosphere would be that energy moves around and today it's 106 degrees in Northern India. You know, last summer it was 106 degrees in Portland. Maybe it wasn't 106, but it was sure hot, right? And so the areas of temperature extremes move around. And the same thing is true in the ocean. An incredible amount of extra energy has gone into the Indian and the Pacific and the Atlantic Ocean, and then it interacts with natural variability to move around. The book kind of focuses on the period, you know, kind of 2015 forward. And so we can just kind of run down the list. And in the summer of 2015, there was incredibly warm waters in the Eastern Pacific Ocean. And that's associated with an El Nino event. And that contributed to severe droughts in Ethiopia and then across Southern Africa that pushed about 45 million people into extreme food insecurity. 
then the ocean cooled in the East Pacific, but became incredibly warm in the West Pacific. And that triggered sequential droughts in East Africa in 2016-17. Then in 2019, the extremely warm water was just off the coast of Kenya in the Western Indian Ocean. And East Africa experienced flooding. You had the worst desert locust outbreak in 75 years, torrential rains. And then since the book finished, <laughs> we've had two back-to-back -back La Nina events associated with incredibly warm waters, again, in the Western Pacific, a sequence of four droughts in East Africa. And actually we're very worried that there's going to be a third year La Nina and that we're going to see yet another drought in October, November, December. But, you know, essentially by having this conceptual model, we can then look at the climate model forecasts and see where those extreme sea surface temperatures are expected to be. They're, they're predicted with a, you know, really high degree uh, of skill. And that's a very empowering perspective that lets us anticipate a lot of kind of droughts and extreme rainfall events. And I think that everyone's woken up to climate change. For many, it's something that we've experienced periodically, but some of these places that are worst affected are distant. But for those of us living in cities, what are your thoughts about cities and how we bear the brunt of climate change, how we need to rethink our systems because we're, these heat waves are coming. Tell us what your thoughts are on the future of cities. Yeah, we actually had a paper that came out at the end of last year in the proceeding of the National Academy of Sciences on this. I produced the data set that was used in the paper, but I wasn't the lead author. Cascade Tuholsky was, but this paper focused on urban heat extremes and tracking the increases in those extremes. And the short story is that we found that they're going up very, very rapidly. And there's a combination of essentially population growth and more extreme humid heat that is putting billions of people um, in harm's way. And uh, we think that there is a, you know, kind of concerning interaction between increased drought stress that is helping to push farmers away from their farms and into cities where they're potentially exposed to these heat extremes. But again, it's very concerning, but this is a place where I, I think we can improve our early warning systems. Extreme heat is very dangerous, but it's also short-lived. So, you know, it's something that we're going to need to figure out how we can cope with that risk. So early warning systems, I don't know how we all take shelter. We all leave cities or, you know, with rising tides or just tell us yeah. about stuff. And which cities do you feel are really taking this serious and making the adequate steps to, as you look forward to say 2050? I mean, I think this is where there's this term called adaptive capacity, right? Which is sort of speaks to a country's or a county or a city's ability to pretty place adaptation. And I think that there are good examples from countries like India, which is a very hot, humid place with more than a billion people in it, but also uh, a very strong tradition in meteorology and weather services. I think they uh, probably have a pretty darn good early warning system 
I mean, if you've ever been to India, you do wonder at some point what people can do if you have, there's not places to hide and pull off. But at least in terms of meteorological support for early warning, I think India would be a, a very good example. I always sleep about uh, a lot of places in the global south that have extremely limited global adaptive capacity. So like the Central African Republic or the DRC or South Sudan, they're countries that are very big and hot and humid with very, very limited early buoyant capabilities. So I think that's a place where we want to try to do better. How can we improve some of our warning systems and how we deal with them? We've really talked about two pathways of risk, warming in the oceans and warming in the atmosphere, essentially, right? And warming in the ocean gives us uh, a better ability to make kind of seasonal climate forecasts. And then I think something that everybody needs to understand is how warming in the atmosphere amplifies the risks of drought, amplifies the risk of floods, and amplifies the risk of, of fire. And the basic science behind that is just the fact that warmer air holds more water vapor, right? There's, there's nothing to believe. It's just, it's the way it is, right? And so the molecules move farther apart when they heat up and it can, uh, a parcel of air can hold more water when it's warmer. When we see conditions that are hot and dry, like here in, in the Western United States, New Mexico, but also in Somalia, Ethiopia, Kenya, then the drier, warmer air is sucking more moisture from plants. And that can desiccate crops and rangelands, but it also uh, dries out fuel and living fuel and set the stage for much bigger fires. So this is kind of a place where both drought and, and fire go together. And I, I have to say that for me, writing the book, that was the biggest thing that I learned. I'm not gonna say that I discovered it because a lot of other pe people discovered these, these hazards, but I hadn't really ever you know, studied them very much until writing that book. And it's very concerning what those desiccating effects of air temperatures are doing right now in, in many places of the world. And then that same principle that warmer air holds more water is increasing the frequency of very extreme precipitation events. You know, because when you get a naturally occurring storm, you have air that is a degree or two warmer, you know, it has about seven to 14% more water vapor in it. Just again, just due to the basic uh, science of how the atmosphere works. And so we're also seeing more extreme precipitation. My name is Andrew Medlin, and I am a student at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, studying global studies and political science. And I enjoyed many things about this conversation, and probably first on that list is Chris's dream. It's a startling, almost uncanny, almost perfect metaphor for why he became an earth scientist. His realignment of priorities is admirable, and I think his dream is a good metaphor for the societal dialogue currently taking place about our own priorities. 
Chris's from an area of the country experiencing some of the first effects of climate change. He has mentioned and will continue to go into detail regarding climate change being not just a gradual procession of warmer temperatures, but instead many varied events that will devastate local areas taking many forms. The wildfires that have devastated California are the first trial in a series of events on the tip of the figurative iceberg. Firefighters in California, truck drivers in the south delivering supplies to flooded areas are some of the first soldiers on a global front line. And these events are not limited to the United States, obviously. Chris writes in his book about alleviating famine in East Africa in 2017. It's an area of the world at risk for famine yet again in 2022 from a combination of climate change and human catastrophe. Grain prices are rising from the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Chris writes in his book that between just 2014 and 2019, a 5 to the 1022nd joule increase in energy, primarily in the form of heat, takes place. For reference, that's the equivalent of 12 million one megaton nuclear bombs. One thing I appreciate about Chris is his examples like that. His ability to speak in layman's terms, and even though I'm about to ask a very flawed question whenever we resume, it's based off of an incorrect breadth of knowledge, he just corrects me and moves on for a teaching moment. So now let's get back to the show. To learn more about Chris's research, go to www.chc.ucsb.edu. And it sounds like the ground is already being baked by that, that warmer air and that direct sun because there isn't any rain. And when it does rain, it's just monsoon and the ground probably isn't holding as much of that water as it should, I would imagine. So is there any sort of technologies that you're aware of, such as cloud seeding that could help alleviate the warm air holding more water vapors? You know, Andrew, it's really interesting that I'm working uh, with a team that studies this. It's not a, a specialty of mine, but, you know, hydrologists are finding out that that more intense precipitation can actually drive more infiltration of water into the deep part of the soil. Sometimes it, it runs off, but actually that really heavy rainfall increased the recharge of soil moisture. And so in a place like Somalia, even as it's getting drier and hotter, the, you know, water in the soil at depth is actually increasing. So that, that means that you might be able to use things like boreholes and dams and, and wells to get at that water. And then, and then just in general, even without climate change, improved water storage and water management is kind of the no brainer way to, to deal with a lot of this climate volatility. And I think California is a, a good example of that, where we have massive water storage that really helps us deal with a lot of year to year variability. And of course that's investing in that is expensive. It's not, I don't want to trivialize it, but that's certainly if the climate is becoming more volatile, investing in systems like that to kind of smooth it out are a good way to adapt. Yeah, there's really a, a lot of interesting solutions. And I know it's not your expertise, but the questions like vertical farming or N-drip technology and things like that, that really will help deal with the, the water crisis that I guess is coming down uh, the pipeline for 36% of cities by 2050 will experience water crisis. Yeah, yeah. And I think you kind of started this conversation about kind of what can we do? And I, I feel like, again, it's just increasing efficiency of all kinds. I mean, 
We've increased the efficiency of American cars massively in the last 15 years to, to no negative effect, right? To have more insulation or to use thirsty approaches to, you know, agriculture and growing food are just smart. And there's a lot that could be done along those fronts if we have the political will to do it. In, in your neck of the woods, we had an interview with uh, Brian Wilcox. These are all just different solutions to how we can get to net zero. But I don't know if you know the uh, work that they're doing, uh, marine biomass. Now, this is another question because of their growing kelp forests in the ocean. That would be a biofuel, <laughs> but, but they need to grow a lot of them. <laughs> it's very interesting. And maybe this is something you could address because I don't know what he says replace eventually all of our fuel needs for road haulage and then eventually for, you know, air transport and then maybe cars and that to get there. I think he said 5% of the world's oceans. What does that do though, in terms of biodiversity? I mean, there must be consequences. If we could even do it, because they have to be on these kelp elevators. I'm kind of out of my depth here, but I believe in all available means. I think we should be exploring all of these avenues. And I didn't put it in the book because I just wanted to fixate on people. That was sort of a, a choice. But if you look at the hazards associated with these extreme sea surface temperatures that we've discussed, they are already massively dangerous. And really damaging coral reefs, you know, all over the world. And so again, I have zero expertise <laughs> in it, but if we need to make a big change in the ocean to save the ocean, that's probably, probably worth it. You know, you mentioned working with firefighters in California during the droughts and different heat waves. What was their attitude like when you talked to them? Like, did they feel like they were fighting on the front lines of climate change, or do they feel like they were just involved in a local disaster, not part of some bigger thing? And what are your thoughts on everything that they were saying? In many ways, the book owes its existence to my friendships with some local volunteer firefighters. And so I live up here in the, the mountains behind Santa Barbara in an area that's wooded and, and highly flammable, right? It's like the perfect place for a fire. And we've had frequent fires in Santa Barbara. And my friend, Mike Williams has a community radio show and where he would talk about hazards and preparation. I started to go on his show periodically and, and that kind of grew to the book because it, it was really interesting to try to talk with non-specialists and describe the science behind what we're seeing and, and firefighters are pretty different in, in general from than the kind of people that you find in a university setting, people from, from kind of usually blue collar kind of perspective. And so it was great to, to talk with them and to try to find ways to communicate climate change and climate change risk that are kind of resonate beyond the ivory tower. What did they feel like? Like what were their feelings. Did they have anything specifically to say? Did, Cause my aunt lives in California and I think she's been evacuated four times in the last five years because of fire. And she just kind of views it as life now in California. The responses really had a huge gamut. There were some real fire experts who were kind of at retirement age 
who I completely failed to, to convince altogether. There is no climate change. It's just sunspots or something. I think especially younger people are a lot more open to this and yeah, it's, it's yeah. Like your aunt is experiencing this. It's pretty, pretty unbelievable now. It's concerning, but on some ways I feel bad for my family and all the people that are paying you know, $10,000 a year in fire insurance. At the same time, it, ironically, it's actually way better that we're suffering from these extremes now while we can still curb emissions than this sort of things going along smoothly for another 20 years and then we're at a point of no return. So it's a bit of a tough perspective, but people in California are de definitely worried about climate change. And, and we just produced last week, 103% of our energy requirements on one day. So we're actually producing more energy from renewables than we consumed. That's a good example of what we can do. That, that's beautiful that the technology is finally scaled up to such a, a level. And having spoken to, having dealt with uh, a number of climate refugees, could you ever see yourself becoming a climate refugee? We are already looking for houses in Italy, up in the mountains, where they get lots of rain. <laughs> in all seriousness, we should be, I could definitely see becoming a climate refugee. And for, for years, a tilt towards a La Nina-like climate, you know, with the, associated with this warming, I have been worried about in the Western Pacific. And, you know, in the last 24 years, we've had um, 12 La Nina events. And now we're likely to see, we just had two events in a row amplified by the effect of this human induced warming in the Western Pacific. And now third one is predicted for next year. And again, it's, I, I don't have a crystal ball and it's really hard to be sure. It's, I would say probable that the drought in the West, Western US is gonna amplify and get worse and that's pretty scary. So just in this little mountain community, like I said, our insurance has gone up from maybe $4,000 a year for fire to, to like $10,000. And we can absorb that. My neighbor Vera, she's on a fixed income and she's paying her fire insurance, but that's a real, if you're a retiree on a fixed income, that's really hard for a lot of people. Yeah. And to think that you've seen the extremities where people have just died from drought. They've lost their families. And I, I don't know what the predictions are because you you have the numbers of when that might be reaching us who are not in the global south. I, I hope not. You talked about curbing emissions and we have a lot of frustration. When can we get to net zero? When can we reach it? Or is it just like greenwashing? But you read the reports, you read the analysis. Are people just finding creative accountancy? I mean, again, I don't track this professionally, but my impression is that there are a lot of commitments being made by this country and others that are not really being met. And my big fear is 
that if you look at people's commitments and kind of run out the numbers as the IPCC does, you still end up with a pretty scary world. But I think it's really likely that we're not going to meet, that most countries won't meet their emission goals because that's the way the world is. Difference between a two-degree world and a four-degree world is just incredible. And I think one of the things I tried to get across in my book was that, okay, if you want to see what one degree of warming looks like, let's look at what's happened over the last 15 years, right? And, and so we see this big increase in these climatic hazards already. We're, we're going to get to two degrees. 1.5, I think is, that's just fairyland, but and so two degrees is going to be a, a lot worse, but four degrees is just going to be a nightmare and, you know, a nightmare beyond our worst comprehension. And so I think, yeah, and I'm not alone in saying that it's nice, but I think we obviously need to take this uh, a lot more seriously, you know, waiting 20 years and then trying to suck a lot of carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere with some magic technologies unlikely to work. Not to mention it'll take so much energy just to suck it up, you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. It is frightening. I think that people kind of envisage it as a apocalyptic or it's like suddenly it's just going to happen. A big wave's going to come. You're just going to burn up. But it's not like that. So how do we manage after? What are those coping mechanisms? Just to go a little bit more detail because we just can't imagine. I guess the work that we're doing here at the Climate Hazard Center is trying to build out the science to cope with a two degree world. And I think that we can do that. It's not going to be easy, but I think that's definitely within our capabilities. And it, it is already making human beings be smarter together in very empowering ways. And these are examples of people in Boulder, Colorado, getting ready for the next big flood event and having conversations between the National Weather Service and local communities. Or, you know, me on a, on a Zoom call at seven in the morning with my friends in East Africa as they're getting ready to cope with the, the next extreme. There are great examples of radio clubs in Niger who are working with their meteorological agencies and local farmer communities that are pulling data that we're producing here in Santa Barbara, precipitation estimates, but then using them to decide whether they should fertilize their millet crops or not. And, and so there's ways that we can counter climate hazards, weather hazards by being smarter. And you referenced COVID earlier, right? I mean, these are ways that we can, you know, be smarter together to, to cope with risk. I'm hopeful we'll be able to adapt, you know, but if we get at four degrees, I, I don't want to leave a four degree world to, to my children. That's for sure. And in closing, because the, you provided stories of resilience and you've pr provided a toolkit of how we can manage and you, it's important to share the numbers with us. So we really know what's coming down the pipeline. But what do you love about the beauty and wonder of the natural world? You, you are living in a beautiful part of the world and in your travels, just what makes it worth fighting for? 
Yeah. Yeah. And I try to describe this in the book too. And because, you know, earth scientists become earth scientists because we love the earth and it is an incredible miracle machine is one, one phrase I like to, to use where we drink in all this incredible solar energy and then it's used to, to feed this megantropic cycle of life, right? Of ever increasing complexity that, that produces humans and cats and kelp and all this incredible sustenance of life is just an, a really, really, really amazing, beautiful thing. Thank you, Chris Funk, for sharing the human stories behind the statistics and your contribution to developing sustainable strategies and work collectively for a better tomorrow. We all live on one planet we call home. Thank you for bearing witness and adding your voice to the One Planet Podcast. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and Andrew Medlin with the participation of collaborating universities and students. One Planet Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. The associate interview producer on this podcast was Andrew Medlin. Digital media coordinators are Jacob A. Preisler and Megan Hagenbarth. Theme music is written and performed by Juan Sanchez. We hope you've enjoyed this program. If you would like to get involved in One Planet Podcast and be a part of the climate change solution, please just drop us a line at team at oneplanetpodcast.org. Thank you for listening.